The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 168 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. And this week we are talking with Alaskan author Stephen C. Levi. He is the master of the impossible crime, (laughs) which you're going to find out what that means and what that's all about here coming up because he's got some fantastic stories to share. Along the way, we're going to be talking about his deep love for Alaska, uh, which comes across whenever he's talking, plus sharing that love through his stories. We're going to hear how he bedazzles his detectives that appear in his stories uh, with these incredible crimes. You know, like I said, the impossible crimes that you hear about. uh, Finding stories no one has heard before. Tips on writing. And uh, you're going to also learn what not to ask if you're ever visiting Alaska. (laughs) That and so many more things. Uh, You might even hear my puppy in the background. Uh, my brand new puppy, Ruby, uh, she had to stay with me that day, so <laughs> it actually interrupted us a couple of times, but I think I got all of that out, but still possible you might hear that, but through it all, I had a really good time talking with Stephen, um, and when it comes to his reading, we're doing something just a little bit different this week, as the the story that you're hearing that he's reading from is actually an article that he wrote, and I I think later it may be becoming like a short book. It's a really fun story that he's sharing, but the book cover that you see on the episode art is The Human Face of the Alaskan Gold Rush, which we talk about a whole lot throughout the episode and uh, focus on there at the end as well. So a little bit different than uh, our usual setup. Usually the, the story that you hear is the same cover art on there, but you know, we're trying something a little different and, uh, um, showcasing two pieces of his work in this in this way so it's a really cool i think it's a really cool setup and uh we're going to try this out and see how it goes i think you're going to enjoy it though and i think if you follow the link in the show notes you're going to see that uh, steven has a lot to offer so you can also uh, see and check out his other books and uh, follow him on social media as well uh, don't forget to follow us on social media facebook twitter instagram we post on there pretty regularly i've been i've been able to post a Actually, last week, I think, was my best week so far after having recovered from COVID for uh, for posting things. <clears throat> I'm going to step that up some more this week and in the weeks to come, uh, Getting a, being able to manage my time a little bit better again now that I'm getting caught up on some other stuff. Uh, if social media is not your thing, you can send us an email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. Leave me a voicemail by calling 660-851-1146 and... As always, you leave me a voicemail, I may play that on an upcoming episode. Uh, one of the exciting things I've been working on in the background, uh, been working on it for, oh my gosh, almost a year now, I think. Uh, we have a Tee Public store now available for the show. And uh, it's really cool. We've got uh, two designs available for the show so far. And a couple of actually designs that uh, were put together based on my own books in the store. But we have more designs coming, more designs for the show being made up as it is right now. Uh, but right now you can head over to the link in the show notes for our Tee Public Store. Uh, they do sales all the time there. 
So I'm going to try and post regularly whenever those uh, sales are going on. Uh, currently for the show, you can pick up uh, t-shirts, coffee mugs, sweaters, uh, notebooks, even uh, pillows, uh, lots of different items available for uh, the designs that we have. You can get just the show name, Sample Chapter Podcast, the regular logo. So it's the black background uh, with gold lettering. And you can get that set up. Or we have a new one uh, so far has come in, which is a book that has a world coming out of it. And it's, you know, sample chapters from all over the world, which I think is pretty, uh, I think that defines the show pretty well. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a nice looking uh, logo. And uh, we're going to we're gonna come up with some more. We have more coming. And as soon as those are available, they'll be right there in that T-Public store. So if you're interested, if you want to show off some swag and show your support, then make sure you order some. And uh, whenever they come in, make sure to take a picture and tag us on social media. Well, I want to go ahead and start thanking our sponsors and podcast friends alike, starting with our uh, affiliate, Audible. We've been with them for a little while and having a good time sharing the links to get a free 30-day trial, which comes with a free Audible book. I use Audible all the time. I listen to Oh my gosh, I think half my books throughout the year that I read, quote, read, I'm, I'm reading through Audible. Um, I really enjoy the service. I think it's a good service, and uh, it's, I, I love audiobooks. So check out this advertisement on how you can grab the free 30-day trial and uh, get your first book. Hello friends, Jason here, and I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a great offer from Audible. Like you, I'm very busy. I have a full-time job, a family, I'm a thriller author, and I do this weekly podcast. But I also love to read. That's where Audible is a lifesaver for me. Whether I'm mowing the yard, working out, driving back and forth to work, or doing some other menial task, I can still listen to an incredible book through Audible. And now you can get a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com samplechapter. By doing that, you'll not only have that 30-day trial, you'll also gain access to guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, exclusive Audible originals, and even podcasts like the Sample Chapter Podcast. Last year is the first time I ever achieved my own personal reading goals, and it was because of some wonderful titles I listened to on Audible. Some of those titles were Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline, narrated by Will Wheaton, the Awaken Online series from Travis Bagwell, narrated by David Stifle. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, narrated by the incredible Ray Porter. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention previous guest Scott Meyer with his Magic 2.0 series, narrated by Luke Daniels. It's a lot of fun and definitely worth your time. Hey, full disclosure, by signing up at audibletrial.com slash samplechapter, the show does get a little monetization, which goes directly towards any production needs uh, with the show. So you're also helping us out here by signing up. So what are you waiting for? Head on over now to audibletrial.com slash samplechapter and start your free 30-day trial today. All right. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much to Audible for being an affiliate with the show. Um, a sponsor of the show now is Scrivener Writing Software, my favorite writing software. I make no secrets about that. Uh, they've been with us for about two years now, uh, maybe a little more than that, actually. 
I, I just absolutely adore using Scrivener for all of my writing now. Uh, writing the series that I'm writing, it's so important to have all your notes on characters and places and events. And I have it all right there on the left-hand pane. It's all organized for me, uh, along with each of my chapters. And uh, I've talked before about how cool it is that because the chapters are broken down, you can actually move them around, change things up. If you realize this chapter doesn't work anymore, it needs to come later or sooner in the story. So many options. and There's Ruby right now, actually. <laughs> so many things that you can do. Hey, check out this advertisement and learn how you can save 20% on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener writing software, built by writers for writers. Okay, I also want to start off uh, by thanking our podcast friends, starting with Pop Goes the Culture, uh, home to a little over a dozen shows like the Multiverse Tonight, Fellowship of the Geeks, Amazing Nerd Show, Two Dads Review, 417 Funko, The Way Awesome Show, The Backlot by Alamo Drafthouse. Oh gosh, I hope that show comes back. <laughs> and of course, the flagship show, Pop Goes the Culture Podcast. Hey, click that link in the show notes for Pop Goes the Culture so you can follow along uh, every Thursday night whenever they are live. You can actually tune into the show and interact with them, leave them comments, and uh, vote on some things. Right now they're doing a contest on the best 90s movie. Uh, we got defeated. Yep, they. it was determined that the fans preferred a different movie over my selection. So, oh well, it's still a lot of fun going on over there. Uh, well worth your time to, to check out all the different shows at Pop Goes the Culture. So click that link in the show notes. I also want to thank Project Entertainment Network, home to about 35 different shows. Shows with a wide variety of interests, uh, whether it's writing, whether it's uh, old horror movies or monster movies. Uh, just so many things to offer. You have comedy debate, book shows like myself, <laughs> like this one, the Sample Chapter Podcast. Just so many, so much more than I have time to run down the list. But check out this advertisement for one of those amazing shows. Welcome to Wild Speculation, a podcast where each episode is a short story that explores one of the many strange, wonderful, and sometimes disturbing worlds of speculative fiction. You can find us at wildspeculation.buzzsprout.com, on the Project Entertainment Network, and wherever else you find podcasts. So sit back, enjoy the story, and let your imagination run wild.
All right, thank you so much to Project Entertainment. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get us on over to our interview with Stephen C. Levi and listen to some of these incredible stories about Alaska. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome back to another exciting episode. Hey, this week we are jumping up to actually a place I am familiar with and uh, only the second time ever that the show has been up in Alaska. Uh, this time we are going up to Anchorage, Alaska to dis- have a chat with author Stephen C. Levi. He is a, an Alaskan historian and writer, a 40-year resident of Anchorage with 80 books in print and Kindle. His nonfiction books on Alaska history include Boom to Bust in the Alaskan Goldfields, uh, her historical forensic investigation into the sinking of Alaska's ghost ship, the Clara Nevada, as well as a history of Alaska's bush pilot heritage, Cowboys of the Sky, which to me, that sounds amazing. I've seen those guys in action. Uh, Levi believes that his <clears throat> Levi believes that his books, both fiction and nonfiction, should be readable, understandable, and educational, and he lives by the title Master of the Impossible Crime, which you're going to hear all about today. Welcome to the show, Mr. Stephen C. Levi. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I am very happy to have you on. Uh, Like I said, this is only the second time I've been to Alaska with the show. Uh, Previously, I had somebody up in Fairbanks uh, that I got to talk to, so that's where I had lived for a couple of years, so I had a lot to talk talk about there, but uh, I have been to Anchorage a couple of times, um how how are you doing there is everything going well you're you're getting by with the uh, pandemic oh the pandemic's not the big problem up here the big problem up here is oil because our economy is based on oil mm. and as you know what's happened now the price of oil is dropping which means state income is dropping and you know the renewable energy is coming in so we're looking at kind of the end of the oil industry up here which which is too bad because that's where we made most of our money right Right. And I think, uh, the didn't the Iditarod just kick off here recently? Yeah, the Iditarod started on Sunday, and it's on its way. All of the mushrooms are on their way to Nome. Mm. It's this year because the snow is pretty deep after you get out, outside of uh, South Central. And, uh, you know, everybody gets up in the morning. The first thing they do is they turn on the television to find out where the mushrooms are. <laughs> that, uh, that was something, you know, it's one of those things that I was aware of it. But I never really followed it until I became a uh, an Alaskan there for the couple of years while I was in the military, and then all of a sudden it's like that's just life. It's it's uh, dog mushing and snow. It's like oh we live in the salmon run. Of course I got to go do that. I finally caught a king salmon my last year, uh, just a few months before I left. I was so happy. Yeah, well this is Alaska. If it's if it's during the summer it's king salmon, and during the winter it's uh, I did a rod. Absolutely. So uh, let's see here. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. You are not a native Alaskan, if I'm correct. No, I'm, uh, I came up here from California about 40 years ago. Um, as a writer, uh, I have a motto, and the motto is that if you don't have something unique, you don't have anything. Is We do not need another novel about a, a detective that's fighting alcoholism, gets called in the best case of his life, and we don't need another book on uh, George Washington. So I concentrate on coming up with something different. And my, uh, my mysteries are called impossible crimes. And an impossible crime is one where the detective has to figure out how the crime was committed before he can go after the perpetrators. 
in uh, The Vanishing Greyhound. Uh, it starts with bank robbers in a bank in San Francisco, and they want to get away with hostages, and they ask for a Greyhound bus. The cops say, gee, that's fine, because we'd rather have you in a Greyhound bus than in the bank. So the, the bank robbers put the uh, hostages, $10 million, and themselves into a Greyhound bus, and they proceed to drive to Sausalito. If you're not from California, Sausalito is on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. And the cops say that's fine. And what they do is they close off the bridge from the Sausalito side, let the Greyhound bus roll out there onto the Golden Gate Bridge and close off the bridge on the other side. So now you got to go the Greyhound bus in the middle of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge and they send their hostage negotiators out there and there's no bus. The bus is gone. The bus has vanished. So now the detective has to figure out how you can make a bus, a Greyhound bus disappear off the Golden Gate Bridge. And if the bank robbers already have the money, why do they have the hostages? So the whole book is designed to say that the detective is trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I you you sent me that uh, snippet before uh, when we were chatting back and forth on email and I, I couldn't get enough of it. That was like, it's like, okay, this is going on my to be read file. I've got to check that out. That one and another one that got my attention, the deserted airliner. Uh, which just another one sounds incredible. Uh, give us a little bit about that. Well, that, if we have a plane that lands in Anchorage here in Anchorage and it lands with no pilot, no passenger and no crew, but it left Seattle with a pilot, passenger and crew and it didn't stop along the way. And we know it's not little green men from Mars that have abducted these people because now the kidnappers want $25 million in diamonds. So now the detective has to figure out, first of all, how you can have people disappear off a plane that's in the air. And second, can he do it fast enough so he doesn't have to pay off the, uh, the ransom? Once again, it's one of these things. I want you to read my books and I want you to be um, confused and trying to figure out what's going on right along with the detective until you get to the last page. <laughs> that, is, that is awesome. Now, these ideas, these wild ideas like this, which definitely have a hook to them, they certainly catch my uh, my interest. Where do you where do you come up with these ideas? Do you kind of just kind of think of what's the wildest thing I can think of, and then how would it how could it happen? Well, if you take a look at my short stories, because I've got about a hundred of them out there, you can go see them on Readers and Writers on Facebook, or you can find them on Rope and Wire, or on Medium. What I do is I start out with something that is that no one would steal. And then I try to figure out a way to make it, make something that's worthless be part of a crime. For instance, in one of the stories, the, uh, the detective gets called up and they say, we've got a problem here, maybe. Uh, somebody stole um, 300, 400 pounds of, of toothpicks. <laughs> and the detective says, why are you calling me? And they say, well, because the toothpicks got stolen out of a, uh, a secure location. You know, and we don't know why they were stolen. We just know they were stolen and we're just trying to figure out what's going on here. So now the detective has to figure out how you can take 400 pounds of toothpicks and use them in a crime. And so the whole story, this is a short story, not a novel. The whole short story is the detective getting, trying to figure out what you can do with 400 pounds of toothpicks where somebody's going to end up using them in a crime and getting away with it. So what I do is I try to start with something that is not stealable and nobody would think about stealing, like toothpicks, and then turn them into stories. 
when it comes to the novels, what I try to do is from my novels, I try to figure out something that nobody would, nobody would, people would say, how do you ever come up with that? Like in my materializing armored car, I have an armored car that disappears in a tunnel. It's under guard and it disappears in a tunnel, but it's empty. So the question is, why would, if you're going to steal an armored car, why are you stealing an empty one? Right. See, but that, what happens is, you know, I want to keep people as confused as possible, as long as possible. And frankly, this, when the real, the real thieves out there, the really, really bad people, they're not out there killing people, they're out there stealing money. And they're coming up with ways of doing it that just, that just, you know, bedazzle the detectives. They really don't know what they're looking at until the last moment. And how about the uh, detectives? Do you have, is this a different tech detective each time or oh, do yeah. you have a, a it is. Oh my goodness. Yeah, same detective, the same detective each time. Mm, okay. Short stories in the novels. Oh, okay. My goodness. That, that sounds incredible though. And I, I love the crossover with the, uh, <clears throat> the same detective in the short stories, but then standalone on the novels. That's, that's uh, really exciting. So now tell us about your uh, your nonfiction, because you have a, I mean, 80 books. This is nothing to laugh at here. You've got a, quite the volume uh, of books. Uh, I mean, I'm not even sure where to begin with uh, with some of these. So tell us about your inspiration behind the, uh, the nonfiction. For nonfiction, you know, again, what I'm looking for is something that nobody has done before. Um, and I've been concentrating on the Alaska Gold Rush. When you talk about the Alaska Gold Rush, most people say, oh, I know all about the Alaska Gold Rush. I read Jack London and I read Robert Service. Well, <laughs> Jack London and Robert Service had nothing to do with the Alaska Gold Rush. They had to do with the Klondike Gold Rush. And that's in Dawson, which is in the Yukon Territory of Canada. But so little is known about the Alaska Gold Rush that if you punch it up on Wikipedia, you get the Klondike. Klondike Gold Rush lasted about 14 months. The Alaska Gold Rush starts in 1880 and ends in 1945. You know, so we're talking about a lot of times. And when you talk to people about the Alaska Gold Rush, they really don't understand it. They think, well, you know, I got a big bunch of land and a bunch of guys running around with pans. Yeah, but there were a whole lot of stampedes. There are three different cities that have just boomed because of the gold rush. There's Nome, Fairbanks, and Juneau. When I started working on the gold rush, I found Alaska gold rush, I found that most people, even Alaskans, really did not know that much about it, which I thought was great because that means when I jumped in and started looking at the federal files and the newspapers and stuff like that, I was looking at stuff that nobody had looked at in a hundred years. Hmm. That really makes it nice is because now I'm I'm discovering people that nobody has heard of. You know, it's not like the lower 48 where somebody says, oh, I'm doing some research on so-and-so. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, well, he was the, you know, he was somebody that. But when I come up with somebody out of the Alaska Gold Rush, people look at me like I've never heard of that guy. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that is really awesome. Now, how long does it take you to put something like that together with your, your nonfiction? Um, when you're doing the last Gold Rush, I've been looking at documents for so long. That what happens is that you know, for like 25 years. And so what happens is I'll work on one book and then I'll suddenly remember something else and go work on that. But when I want to sit down and actually do the book, I've, I've done all of the background work. So it's just a matter of pulling the, the, the stuff together. The, um, when it comes to the novels, that's a little different because you want to make your novels to be, to, uh, to be similar to history, enough, enough similar to history that people say, oh, I, you know, I, I can see how that works. Mm -hmm. 
But what really makes it interesting are the individual people and the things that they did that are completely different in Alaska than any place else. Um, give you an example. Up in, uh, up in Nome, they had a bartender that was making all kinds of money, and they couldn't figure out how he was doing it because he was working as a bartender. And, you know, and years later, it turns out that what he was doing is that when he got up in the morning and went to work, what he would do is he would put syrup in his hair. And in those days, they didn't, in Nome, you didn't use money, you used gold. Nobody had cash the way we think of cash today. Yeah. So when he served a drink, what he would do is he would serve the drink and he'd take a certain pinch of gold out, you know, to pay for the drink. And then after he had taken the gold out, he would run his fingers through his hair and he would take some of the flakes and some of the flakes would stick to his hair. So what happened is, you know, after eight, nine hours of working as a bartender and every once in a while putting these little flakes of gold in his hair, he'd go home at night and he'd shampoo his hair and then he'd and the water <laughs> you know and i mean this is this fantastic little story i mean this <laughs> little story you're saying boy that is neat yeah i've never seen that I'm, i did research i lived in california and did research on the california gold rush and i never heard anything like that no oh my gosh wow oh man all right uh i gotta hear another one <laughs> what's what's another one of the unique ones that stand out to you 1905 up in eagle which is a little tiny town Eagle was formed from a bunch of a bunch of people who were uh, on the woodpile means that they caught you doing something and they can't send you out to jail. So they have you put they have you cut wood for six months or something. So these guys, a bunch of guys from a woodpile in Dawson, you know, decided they were going to set up their own little town. And so what they did is they crossed over into Alaska and they set up Eagle. That's how Eagle was founded. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys there is a guy named Robertson and Erwin Robertson had come north to try to get enough money to build an airplane. And he finally did build an airplane in the 1920s. He built it himself and he covered it in feathers and he was going to see if it would fly, but it, it burned, <laughs> it burned to the ground before he could fly. <laughs> but in 1905, what happened is he had this bear that was bothering his, uh, his cabin. So he shot the bear, but he couldn't scare the bear off. So he shot it. Well, now he had a problem because the bear was pretty heavy and he didn't have a horse or a car to drag the carcass away. And he, if he left it there, wolves would come in and eat the carcass and he'd have a wolf problem. Yeah. He couldn't butcher the bear and try to sell the meat because people don't eat bear meat. And he couldn't eat the bear because he didn't have any teeth. He'd had scurvy and he had no teeth. So what he did was he went ahead and took the bear's teeth and he made a set of dentures and he ate the bear with its own teeth. <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> oh give me these are the kind of stories that these are the kind of stories you're getting out of the Alaska gold rush and nobody you, I'm, you know when i tell people some of the stuff they i've never heard of that they say that you know and you say in some of these little towns they said well i knew that there was a boom town named that but i didn't know they had a newspaper and you say well yeah you can go through and hear some interesting stories about people in these little tiny towns yeah, I, I remember my time up there hearing, you know, you hear all kinds of tall tales mm-hmm. in, in Alaska and you hear about, of course, you know, I, I heard about chicken Alaska, which is mm-hmm. funny because I've still, I've won a few bets over time uh, that people are like, no, there's no chicken Alaska. Oh, yes, there is. There is, yeah. <clears throat> you know why they call it chicken, why it's named chicken? I, I, I think I remember it, but go ahead, tell me. <laughs> they couldn't agree on the spelling of ptarmigan. So they settled for chicken. 
Okay. I knew it was something about spelling something else, but I couldn't remember what it was. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Uh, I hear they have great turkey sandwiches. I wouldn't know, but chicken is not that large, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, there, there was that, you know, of course, uh, then there's the safety issues of, you know, avoid the snow banks and things like that. Um, don't go on your roof uh, in the middle of the winter because you can slide off and uh, they won't find you until spring. Yeah, uh, that's, the thing about Alaska is people just do not understand Alaska. They think that we're just like every other state. But look at it this way. If you don't know Alaska, when you get on a plane in Seattle and you fly to Anchorage, which is the largest city in the state, mm -hmm. you fly for four hours. And when you look down, there's nothing but forest. And then when you get to Anchorage, if you want to fly to Fairbanks, which is the second largest town in Alaska, what happens is you get on a plane and you fly for two hours north. And when you look down, if you're lucky, you can see a row. But most of the time, you just see forests. And yeah. all of Anchorage are only 600,000 people, which in the lower 48, that's not a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But Alaska has 365 million acres of land. I mean, that's just staggering. It's twice the size of Texas. And it's got 600,000 people. It was a beautiful place. I, I really loved it. I, I, I wonder now how um, smart it was to camp out behind the base uh, as much as I did on my own. Um, the first time I was out camping and I could smell something terrible was the last time I did it without a gun. <laughs> but uh, I, I, that's when I realized like, yeah, uh, okay, I, there's something's dead out here. I should probably have something to help <clears throat> but uh when you see when you see a brown bear I, I don't care how many times you've seen a stuffed brown bear the first time you see a brown bear a real live one mm -hmm. you, you are shocked i mean i lived in alaska for a long time the first time i saw my brown bear even i was shocked you know because when it stood up it's eight feet tall it's two thousand pounds and it can run at 45 miles an hour it's amazing yeah and you know the whole time i was there i never saw a bear um, aside from a couple of uh, black bears, uh, we lived in Colorado for a while. I saw plenty of uh, black bears there, but the moose, that's what surprised me. It was just, I never realized how tall they were. And I've, I had twice where I'm, I would go fishing and uh, walk the trails behind the base and, and I turn a corner and there's a moose and I looking at each other and I'm like, oh, hi, I'm going to go back this way. Let's uh, stay out of the way. Because you never, I, I'd never heard until I got to Alaska how you got to watch out for moose. They will trample you and they will kill you. Oh, they're so stupid, you know. I mean, you just they don't. Uh, you can't scare them. They, they, you, you just avoid them. Oh my gosh! So now, how uh, how long have you been writing for? What uh, when did this start? I started writing when I was in elementary school because mm -hmm. someday I was gonna. Someday, I, one of my books will make me a million. I'm still waiting. <laughs> But uh, it's, been, uh, it's been quite a while. And as a writer, what happens is over the years, you learn all of the things that you did wrong. That's the one thing about writing is that you keep learning things that you did wrong, not necessarily things that you did right. If you do something right and you succeed, it's, it was by accident. But the, uh, the most important thing about writing, is that, as I keep saying, is that make it different, make it new, make it unique. And if there are writers listening to you, if you've read a plot line before, don't ever use that. Come up with something new. See, 
about 10, but, uh, 10 years ago, before 10 years ago, books in bookstores were published by publishers who wanted to make money. And so what they did is they published books that they thought would make money. They didn't publish good books. They published books that they thought would make money. Mm -hmm. Now with the internet, anybody can write a book. And so now this is the golden age of literature coming up is because now if you're looking for a unique book with a unique plot line, you can find it on the internet, which yeah. is a reason that you should be writing things that are different. Absolutely. Well, something that is definitely different, uh, one of your most recent books, uh, The Human Face of the Alaskan Gold Rush. Uh, give us some insight to that. Uh, this, this sounds amazing. We have to understand that by the time you get to the Alaska Gold Rush, this is 1896 to 1905, roughly that period, what happens is everybody in the lower 48 is civilized. In other words, they have operating courts, they have operating newspapers. And so when you came to Alaska, a lot of these guys coming to Alaska were people who were going for the gold, but they're also running from things. Hmm. So what happens is you have a lot of criminals that are coming up here and kind of fading in. And one of the big things is that nobody had their own names, but they wouldn't say, I'm John Smith. He'd be up there for a while and he'd be this, you know, I'm Wild Bear Johnny. Mm -hmm. And so you have all of these guys in the newspapers, you start reading it, you don't know who these people are. You just know that it's, uh, you know, Owl Face George and Wild Car Willie and stuff like that. And you start reading it, and then they'll commit crimes up here and then they'll finally get caught and you'll say, oh, wow, that's pretty neat. You know, here's a guy who came up here, you know, tried to get away from the law and got caught because he was doing the same thing up here that he was doing in the lower states. But it's a wild, it's up here, it is wild and free and very, very hard to explain to people. When you're talking about a city like Nome, you'll have to look at a map to see what I'm talking about. But the Bering Sea is going to freeze from the Aleutians all the way to the Arctic Circle. Okay, okay, so what you're talking about, when you want to get into Nome, you can, um, by boat, you cannot get into Nome until about the 1st of June. And then when the Bering Sea freezes, if you're not out of Nome by September 15th, you're probably going to get frozen in for the winter. Mm. So in Nome, when you start talking about the gold rush in Nome, these people are stuck from September to June. <laughs> you can't get out. And if you don't have the food that you need, you starve. And it's just, it's a very, very rough time. You know, and, and um, you know, let's take the California gold rush. You could pretty much get into San Francisco anytime you want. Nome, Fairbanks, if you're stuck, once the winter, once the Bering Sea freezes, you're stuck there for seven months. Mm -hmm. I never even thought about that. Because, yeah, anytime I'd hear about the Alaskan gold rush, yeah, I think of, you know, going up into the mountains, panning the rivers, and such uh, things like that and you, you hear the rumors of yeah they're practically picking it up off the ground uh these giant nuggets uh but yeah gnome oh my gosh I, that's just uh, to be uh landlocked in like that for uh for so long that's i never even considered that well gnome is also unusual because most of the people that were making the money were on the beach see if you're on the beach that's federal property and you mm -hmm. can't you cannot stake it. You can mine it, but you can't stake it. So these guys would go out onto the beach. Tide would go out. These people would go out onto the beach with their pans, and they would pan the, the sand out there, and they would do it for 12 hours until the tide came back in, and then they would come back in. And you could make thousands of dollars or nothing. 
but the beaches, you know, beaches full of these people. Got to understand that during the Alaska Gold Rush, Nome was about twelve blocks deep and about twenty miles long. Oh my gosh! I didn't even realize it was that 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 was the dimensions. Well, like I'm saying, it's a lot of people they just do not know that much about the Alaska Gold Rush. So, uh, give us a little bit, uh, a little bit of insight. Uh, some more information about this, uh, the human face. Uh, is Was there like a specific story about this or a, a certain story in there that uh, that stands out or, uh, uh, you know, something else, uh, another nugget, if you will, uh, for uh, listeners to uh, be interested in? The Alaska Gold Rush, if you want to start talking, get into it, there are actually three different parts. And you have to understand, if, if you're from the lower 48, it's hard to explain. But if you live in California, you talk about the gold rush, you're talking about a whole bunch of people who go out and they stand around on a, on a riverbank and they pan for gold. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, there's somebody that's called a mine. They have something called a mine where a bunch of people go into the ground and dig dirt out and try to get the gold out. In Alaska, we have three different parts of the gold rush that are completely different. There's Nome. Nome, the bulk of the people are out there on the beach and they're panning the beach. Yes, there were some mines in the back, but most of the people are out there on the uh, on the beach and they're panning for gold. And they're locked in because once the ice comes in in September, you're there until June. And on top of that, don't forget, if you take a look at your map, you will see how far north Nome is. There are no trees. There are no forests in Nome. What this means is that all of the wood that's going to build Nome has to come in by ship, and Nome had no w- wood to burn, and so they would have to bring in coal. We're talking about 10, 20 tons of coal that had to be brought in in bags so that the people in Nome could make it through the winter without freezing. So that's one kind of, that's one part of the gold rush. The second part of the gold rush is Fairbanks. Fairbanks is completely different. There's not a lot of gold that's lying around on the ground by the, uh, on the edge of the rivers. So what they do is they have to dredge for it. So Nome is a big dredging community. So a dredge, what happens in a dredge, you get a boat and you go out and you have a, a, a line of buckets and you drop the buckets into the bottom of the river and they scoop up the soil from the bottom of the river and they dump it off in the, in the dredge. And, and they get the gold out. The good part is that you get large nuggets because that's what you collect. The bad part is that you leave as much in the leavings as you got from the nuggets. Hmm. So a lot of people today, when they want to go looking for gold, what they do is they go find where a dredge has left a bunch of material because they know there's gold in there. It's completely different. Then you go to Juno, and Juno is a hard rock mine. Nobody is out there with a pan in Juno. What they did is they went and started drilling right into the mountains. And Juno is completely different than the rest of the uh, country when it comes to mining, is because if you were in California or you were in Nevada and you wanted to do mining, what you basically did is your miners would, or the people who worked in the mine, would start at the top of the mountain. And they would get in a uh, elevator, and then the elevator would take them down maybe a thousand feet, and then they would start mining for gold a thousand feet down. And they would put all of the uh, the rock and the soil and everything else that they got in these ore carts, and then they would put the ore carts on the elevator, and the elevator would take the the material back up to the top of the mountain where they would sort out the gold from the from the rest. 
In Juno, it's completely different and much, and much more profitable because the miners walked into the mine from the bottom. What happens is they're down at the shore, they just walk into the mine and walk up to where they're gonna be working. They put the, uh, the offal, the, uh, the gravel and everything else into ore carts and the ore carts just kind of just roll down courtesy of gravity. Hmm. If you look at a picture of Juno, you have to understand that the entire city of what you now call Juno was made from the from the overburden that came out of the mine. So what happens is Juno starts out as being no city at all, and they kept dump, dumping boulders and rocks and gravel and everything else out of the mine, and it filled up in the Gastineau Channel, and that's what Juno is built like. So what happens is when you start talking about the Alaskan Gold Rush, you're talking about three completely different ways that people were making the big bucks and each town grew up. Juneau is a very sophisticated town. It's always been that way. There's been a lot of money in there. It comes from the mine. And you, if you live there, you would find it very similar to a place like New York. Because what happens is there are the rich people and the poor people, and then the shops that the rich people go to and the restaurants that the rich people go to. You go to Fairbanks, hey, it's, it doesn't make any difference whether you have any money. And what happens is everybody is in town and everybody goes everywhere. Mm -hmm. And Nome is the same way. Nome is so small that you can't really have anything special. But it's three completely different uh, cities even today. And it's three completely different cities when you talk about the gold rush. Yeah. And, and you know, and it's, as, as you're saying that, I'm remembering while I was in Fairbanks, the uh, uh, the gold panning and, uh, you know, they had sites you could go and, and try it out and hearing about the the gold dust and how most of us don't really think nothing of it. And, and a lot of people don't even know what they're looking at uh, and they're missing a lot of it. And uh, you talk to some and you find out like, yeah, at the end of the season, they'll go back through these areas where the civilians and the tourists have been panning and then they clear that out and they're finding pounds upon pounds and pounds of gold dust uh, that almost pays for their season uh, just uh, of what we've, uh, the, the tourists have lost and how much uh, is collected there in the bottom and, and such. Just amazing to, to hear all the different methods that it's this there. It's just incredible. But if you know what if you know what you're doing, you can't, very few people make a living doing it, but a lot of people can make a lot of money in the mining process and they can a lot of the times people are going through old spoil piles and they're finding a lot of material you know there's still a gold rush going on here just there are not many people involved <laughs> so that's your most recent book uh but we have another one we're going to be hearing from today which is really this is a lot of fun and i can't wait to hear more about this uh to to lie like an alaskan uh give us some insight into this <laughs> You have to understand that in Alaska, we have a, a unique type of humor. It's called absurdity. And I'll be reading a little story about that. Um, absurding is you have to understand that in Anchorage, Anchorage we have, when you talk to people who aren't living on the military base, there are about 250,000 of us. Of those, maybe the bulk of us never get downtown during the summer because a million tourists will come through in June, July, and August. And when the tourists come in, you know, they fill up the restaurants and everything else. But occasionally tourists will come to an Alaskan and they will ask a question. And most of the questions that we get asked about Alaska are unbelievably stupid. You know? <laughs> and they will say things like, well, this is the land of the midnight sun, right? And you say, yeah. And they, they said, well, you know, what's it like during 
during the winter. And you realize these people think that Alaska has six months of darkness mm -hmm. followed immediately by six months of unbroken sunshine. <laughs> you're saying, where did you get your education? You know, yeah. I mean, and so rather than tell them something like that, people will ask about penguins, you know, where can we see some penguins? And rather than tell them, look, the nearest penguins you're going to see are in Antarctica. They have nothing to do with Alaska. So what Alaskans do is they get tired of answering these questions. And so they just look at the person and they lie. They say, oh, you want to see some penguins? Well, you know, they're down at the park strip. You know, you can see them down at the park strip, but you have to go there early in the morning. <laughs> you know, and this is called absurding. What happens is the last use, the questions are unbelievable. I have been in a post office where they have tourists who are in the United States post office buying United States stamps with United States dollars from somebody in the United States post office uniform. And as they hand them the postcards, they say, how long is this postcard going to take to get to the United States? <laughs> yes. You, you say, you just it's kind of like, it's mind boggling. No place else in the country will you have with something like that happen. <laughs> that, that is remarkable. Okay, oh so my gosh. This is a, this is, this is a, my story to lie like an Alaskan. Well, before we go into that, let me, uh, let me ask first, uh, where can people find and follow you? They can follow me on uh, Facebook and on LinkedIn. And I have uh, stevelevibooks.com. You can see my books. The best place to find my most recent books is Author Masterminds. Author Masterminds is a fantastic page. It's 18 different authors who are the best in their field. So if you're looking for a book, but you don't necessarily want a uh, mystery, but you want something else like a book on faith or, you know, or supernatural, or you want a ghost story, go to Author Masterminds because what we did is we put the group together of people who were very, very good writers, but weren't competing each other on subject. It's an excellent place to find a book. Hmm. All right. Yeah. And I, I remember uh, I checked that out whenever we first connected and yeah, it's, I never thought about LinkedIn being such a great place uh, until I, I created my account here. At, it's incredible. All the authors that I have come across and, and met because of that. And you're one of them uh, that we connected on there. And it's uh, such a great place for uh, an author community. So for those people who are readers or writers, we're in a whole new world now. And what <laughs> happens is that you have to go looking for the books that you want to read. You mm -hmm. know, it's not as easy as going into a You could used to be you could go into a bookstore and go to the mystery section and get a selection of books. That's been gone. And so now what you have to do is you have to go looking for the books, which I think is great because now you're finding stuff that the bookstores wouldn't carry. Bookstores free, publishers for years would not cover my, would not uh, publish my books because I don't kill people. <laughs> Most mysteries, there is a murder. If you take a look, even on television, when you start talking about a mystery program or a law and order program, somebody has to get killed. I don't like to kill people. Mm -hmm. So people say, well, you know, publishers would tell me, well, if you want us to publish your book, you have to have a murder. And I'm saying, well, I don't do murders. <laughs> well, that is certainly a, uh, a unique way to do it. So that way you've got your books that stand out the way uh, the way you like them too. I, I think that's uh, that's amazing, and I'm so happy that uh, you've come on here. I'm so happy to be able to uh, learn something from you and uh, hear about all your amazing books. So, gosh, everybody, make sure you click the link in the show notes for authormasterminds.com and Steve's website, and uh, go to his Facebook. Click all those links and get over there and follow Steve and uh, check out some of these books because I I'm adding several of them right now 
to my uh, to be read file. So, and people, you got to do the same. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a real blast, and uh, man, just bringing back some happy memories from my uh, younger days as a young man. Without further ado, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen C. Levi with "To Lie Like an Alaskan." When it comes to tall tales, Alaskans are king. No one can tell a whopper like an Alaskan. In fact, telling fabricated tales of Northland and being Alaskan goes hand in hand. This is not to say all Alaskans tell lies. Most of them do, though not all of them. But so many Alaskans have grown accustomed to telling wild tales about the Northland that the only person with a lower credibility than an Alaskan with a bear story is a politician proposing a tax cut three days before a primary election. And Alaskans have such easy marks. For the most part, outsiders, that is, people from the lower 48, are amazingly ignorant when it comes to Alaska. Though Alaska is a state of the United States, many Americans continue to believe that it's a different country uses another form of currency and requires a visa for travel. These same people, many of them with college educations, also fervently believe that Alaska is a land of ice and snow where the residents live in igloos and ranch penguins. In fact, in downtown Anchorage, it is not uncommon to hear tourists actually asking which restaurants serve blubber stew, the location of the nearest igloo, or where the northern lights go when the sun is up for 24 hours a day. During the summer, it takes Alaskans all of about two weeks to get tired of setting the record straight for outsiders. It's just too time consuming for Alaskans to be truthful because the number of visitors that flood the state during the summer months are into the millions. Anchorage, Alaska's largest city, only has 265,000 people, but it hosts more than a million and a half tourists in the 90 days of summer. That's quite a few people to set straight. After about the 15th of June, tired of constantly telling tourists there are no igloos in Alaska or that penguins are only indigenous to Antarctica, Alaskans begin to fudge on the truth. They aren't really lying. It's an Alaskan folk art form kindly known as absurding. More precisely, absurding is a technique similar to the tall tale. But it is different from the tall tale because the art of deliberately confirming whatever bizarre fantasy a tourist believes of Alaska regardless of how incredible that may be, and then expanding the absurdity even further. For example, if a tourist were to ask where he or she might see a penguin nest, an Alaskan intent on absurding might respond, well, it's been a lean year for penguins because the alligators keep forcing them out of the beaver lodges. That's where they spend the summer, you know, in beaver lodges. Well, this may sound like a bizarre answer. It's not. Astoundingly, tourists will believe just about any tale about Alaska, and the more fantastic the lie, the more believable it will appear to be. From giant man-eating crabs in the Cusquim River to a genetic cross between a moose and a walrus called an Alaskatalo, tourists are constantly being absurded by Alaskans who weave the most ludicrous stories from the threads of a tourist's imagination. What makes this so easy for Alaskans is the incredible diversity of the state. Since Alaska is so large, there are few statements that are true from Ketchikan to Barrow. Take the myth of Alaska seasons. In the far north, Barrow on the shore of the Arctic Ocean, the sun is aloft for months at a time during the summer. It does not set, as people in the lower 48 know the term, for 84 days. The sun simply circles the horizon. Time of day is indicated not by when the sun sets, but at what point of the compass it happens to be. Then there is the flip side of this good news. 
during the winter, there are 67 days in barrel when the sun does not hop above the horizon. In other words, on November 18th, the sun sets and does not rise until January 24th. But in Anchorage and Fairbanks, there are sunsets during the summer and sunrises during the winter, just as there are in Seattle, Denver, Chicago, New York. But over the years, textbooks have mistakenly stated that Alaska, the land of the midnight sun, has six months of darkness and six months of light, leaving many college-educated Americans to firmly believe that Alaska has six months of pitch darkness, followed instantaneously by six months of unbroken sunshine. Living in Alaska also requires an adjustment to one's vocabulary. While most Alaskans speak English, many of the terms which Alaskans use daily are not even in uncommon usage in the rest of the country. Sitka slippers, for instance, are plastic boots with felt liners, which are preferred footwear in cities like Sitka, obviously, where the only time it isn't raining is when the storm clouds are gathering. A cache is a place to store food, and hooch is a cheap form of alcoholic beverage. Alaskans, to the distress of chichacos, those are newcomers, frequently use such terms as taku, cuspic, chinook, Willowa, Orca, Muktuk, Blue Ticket, Lower 48, Pingo, Burn, Break, and Scrimshaw. While each of these has a specific Alaskan meaning, sometimes the use of the terms leads to humorous confusion. One evening, a news reporter called a public relations representative for a large oil company, only to be told by the man's wife that he was outside. Outside to an Alaskan means the Lower 48. Will he be gone long, the reporter asked, assuming he was in Seattle? I hope not, his wife said. He's only taking out the garbage. Alaskans also thrive on the difference between their state and the rest of the union. Beards and bear stories are in. Yuppies are out. Functional dress is expected. Three-piece suits is reserved for IBM salesmen and Xerox repair personnel. Backpacks are as accepted at business meetings as briefcases. Alaskan humor is different as well. Take Alaskan holidays. Every February, Cordova on the shores of Prince William Sound sponsors an ice worm festival to commemorate the beastie of Robert's service invention. Though there really are ice worms which live near the surface of glacier, the beast of Robert's service creation was a piece of spaghetti with inked in eyes that was dropped into the glass of whiskey to bamboozle a chichaco. Honoring the ice worm, each year the citizens of Cordova conclude their ice worm festival with a parade highlighted by the appearance of a 150-foot ice worm that weaves its way along the parade route. Further north, Talkeetna sponsors a moose-dropping festival with contestants involving another item of Alaskan humor, moose nuggets. In Anchorage, each November, there is the Alaskatalo Day Parade. Taken from a story in Warren Sitka's sourdough journalist, the Alaska cattle was a genetic cross between a moose and a walrus. Billed as the longest running, shortest parade in American history, the Alaska Cattle Day Parade is one block long down an alley. It's held the first Sunday after the third Saturday in November and begins at 12.03. If you want to march in the parade, Warren Sick advises, you better be on time. If you're 30 seconds late, the parade's half over. Alaskan humor is different because Alaska is different. While many regions of America can point with pride to their own homespun humorists, Alaska is not so fortunate. Mark Twain captured the spirit of Western humor, while Uncle Remus did the same for the South. In the East, there is Washington Irving. Alaska, however, is a land without a written heritage of humor. But Alaskans, one by one, each in his own and her special way, are changing that. One winter, as an example, during the Anchorage for Rendezvous, a bearded Alaskan was pawing through a pile of imported kangaroo pelts on the floor of a fur shop. 
looking for just the right color combination to make himself a floppy hat. He was dividing the pelts into piles of possibility. Just as he was finishing a tourist fresh from the thrill of her first open air fur auction, stepped into the shop and spotted this bearded character, clearly one of those grizzled sourdoughs which she had read so much about, with piles of pelts on the floor. Pulling out her camera and adjusting the focus, she asked what kind of pelts he was handling. Kangaroo, he said without looking up. Oh, really, she said, are they Alaskan? An evil gleam flashed in his eye for a moment. Yeah, he grumbled without looking up. From up around Bethel. And right now, somewhere in upstate New York, there is some woman swearing to her friends that there really are kangaroo in Alaska. All right, that was Stephen C. Levi reading To Lie Like an Alaskan. It's one of his articles that came out. But we also want you to check out The Human Face of the Alaskan Gold Rush which we talked about throughout the interview. Don't forget to click the link in the show notes for Stephen and uh, all of his social media. Also click that link in the show notes for our sponsors and podcast friends alike. We've also got that T Public link in there too, so you can go check out some of our merchandise now uh, with more exciting things to come. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when we're back with an all-new author, a new book, and a new sample chapter. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you again real, real soon. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.